I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Guy Barter, and this is the RHS Gardening Podcast. We're all adapting to our new situation, and with more time on our hands at home, it feels like the perfect chance to get out into our green spaces. Today, I'd like to think about how gardening and gardens can be a refuge for us, a place for us to escape into, particularly at the moment. It's a wonderful feeling for people to think that they've actually grown something that they planted themselves. Rob Evans is a gruff-sounding bloke from Bridgend, South Wales. When you see a, a field full of dahlias on any morning, you know, we walk through the field in the morning when they're all full flower, it's like as if they've all got their little happy faces on. He's probably the last person you'd expect to adore such a delicate plant as the dahlia, but he's the owner of Pheasant Acre Plants, a nursery that specialises in growing dahlias and gladioli. Anything he doesn't know about dahlias isn't worth knowing. Dahlias make you feel happy. They're bright, they're vibrant. That's the thing about gardening. It doesn't matter where you're from. What you do, who you are, it can be your ray of sunshine. And for Rob, that's what the dahlia is to him. I've always had a very keen interest in horticulture. Uh, As a child, my father grew uh, flowers and plants and at the age of five I went to the first or my first RHS uh, show which was a chrysanthemum show in the RHS halls in London and I think from then on really uh, I've always had an interest in horticulture and uh, especially growing of different plants. The first time I saw dahlias, obviously my father was growing some in the garden, but I think it was the fact that when I started going to the shows when I was six, seven with my father, eight-year-old, you'd see the the vast range of colours coming in. Things like deep purples and, you know, the maroon and the wine reds. Now, these were colours that were not normally seen. It was mainly reds and yellows, again, straight colours. But I think that's what drew me to the dahlia in the beginning, is the amount of different colours there were. How would I describe a dahlia? Whatever the weather, be it rain, sun, or even in the windy days, they're there, and the flower never diminishes on them. You never see a sad dahlia, I don't think. You know, when you look at them all growing together, the wind blows through them, The next morning, if it's been raining all night, they'll be there standing up straight again, maybe a little washed with the water on them, 
but given an hour or two of the wind and the sun again, and they dried out and uh, they're looking wonderful again. This year we were the RHS Master Gardener at Cardiff and last year we had the photographer who came down to do the filming and things and the question I was asked was, do I have a favourite dahlia? Now, on different days you have favourite dahlias but the one for myself that stands out more than anything is a variety called Clearview Debbie. I bought this from America about five years ago and seeing the picture on a website like everybody else looks at, you think, oh, right, that looks nice. When it came and I grew it myself, it was even more beautiful, if that could be anything to go by, than what the picture was. It's um, a small decorative. It's about six inches in diameter. It's white with magenta pink. But one morning I came to the nursery and the reason why it's my favourite, the rain had been, or misty dew really, not rain, had been lying on the petals. And the colour that came through it, you could see the magenta sparkling, the white was pure white. And as it ages, the bloom, the magenta pink comes deeper into the petals. So from the start of the bloom to the finish of the bloom, over the matter of three or four weeks, there's, you know, a completely different colouring from start to finish. Even when you've got 600 varieties, um, I get told, stop looking on other websites because, you know, you don't need any more. But then, like a child in a sweet shop, there's always something that takes your fancy. Regardless, be it a pom-pom dahlia or something that's... Uh, you know, a giant decorative, there's always something new. And the good thing is that in the UK, we're very lucky that we have a lot of private breeders. So all the dahlia growers produce their own varieties by cross-pollinating. And, you know, every year they all want to show their dahlias, their new varieties. And, you know, at the national show, there's always the class for the new seedling. And every year at the Wisley show, that is one class that... I'll always look at because you never know what's going to be there. There could always be something new that you think, yes, that's going to be good. I'll always love them. The only time of year I don't love them is when I have to lift them out of the ground in October and November when we're cutting them back and they're dying back. When you've got a couple of thousand tubers to lift out of very heavy clay soil, on a wet, windy day, that's most probably the day when I think, uh, why am I growing dahlias? But then you think back and then on the summer's day when they're in full flower, so it's something that we'll always be growing. Hearing Rob reminisce about the dahlia reminded me of when I first started at Wisley. At that time there was a trial of dahlias, 200 different ones and I was in charge of them. So that's 600 plants to be watered, fed after they'd been planted and in September there was the task three times a week of deadheading them. It was a lovely job on a cold crisp September morning. I've always liked their pure colour and I think that's what a lot of people like as well. They're cheerful, a wide range of colours, they're easy to grow and you keep the dahlia year after year. 
There's lots of enthusiastic young dahlia growers as well, so the future for the dahlia looks pretty assured. If you have plants in pots, or are planning on sowing seeds indoors, you'll soon be reaching for a bag of potting compost. But what many people don't realise is that some compost isn't actually very environmentally friendly. Most of it contains peat, a substance taken from bogs around the world. These bogs are incredibly important for wildlife and capturing carbon, and it's vital that we gardeners do our bit to protect them. Going peat-free is easier than ever. Now gardeners are faced with an actual choice of peat-free composts, and they all behave differently from your classic peat version. So to help, here's one of our horticultural advisors, Becky Mealy, with some top tips for going peat-free. So I'm going to give you a few tips of how to use peat-free compost and to get the best from being environmentally friendly and getting your gardener green stars. So if compost is not made from peat, what is it made of? It tends to be more woody materials, so composted bark, wood fibres, coir, coconut fibre and green compost. So the stuff that you take to the council that's been composted down, sterilised and then added to it. Also other products are added like loam and grit and sharp sand to make them freer draining and open it up a little. So first and foremost, it can be quite chunky, you get quite bigger particles in it. So don't be afraid of sieving it and getting the bigger parts out. Those bits can be put into your garden, added to your own compost bin, and don't throw them away. But for finer jobs like sowing seeds, you don't want those bits in the way. For sowing seeds, you need a compost with added loam. Loam is more of a sandier, finer particle. It's a bit like your garden soil. And this is because obviously your seed's smaller and it doesn't want a big chunk of mulch on top of it. Then when you're using peat-free in your pots, be aware that the top inch tends to dry out. So it looks like your plant needs to have a water, but it doesn't. So always make sure you poke your finger down or lift the pot up because by and large, you will find that the pot is quite heavy and the bottom layer can sit a bit wet. So for certain plants, you might want to add some grit to make sure that it drains better or you might want to add some of your own compost to kind of pad it out a little bit but don't use your own compost with seedlings because it can burn the new little roots and it can be a bit too overly rich think of it as a, a conditioner for your soil or a little bit of an additive into a pot just to make it a bit richer one of the problems I've always had is the fungus gnats. They tend to quite like it because there is a lot of green material in the peat-free compost. So I try and make sure with my houseplants it's water from the bottom so the actual top layer sits dry and then they don't tend to want to live in that layer or put some fine nice grit on the top and again that makes a nice a barrier and also looks pretty. Then they won't want to be in there and bother you in the house because there's nothing like a fungus gnat bothering you while you're watching telly. Sometimes people worry about switching something from, so it's been growing in peat and then they need to repot it and then they want to go, well, can I actually then repot it in peat-free compost? Well, yeah, you can. So it's just a case of making sure that you loosen off those roots and that root ball and maybe mix a little bit of the old peat compost with the peat-free, just so there's a little bit of a mix between the two. 
because what can happen is the new peat-free compost could sit a little bit wet around the actual root ball. So you just want to encourage those nice new roots out into the peat-free compost, but also keep an eye on your watering. So the roots and the plant will want to live, so it will send out those roots. So keep it on the drier side until the plant has established in their pot, and then the plant will get away and growing, and just monitor the actual performance of the plant. They're very good at telling you they're not happy. So my top tips for peat-free compost Watering with peat-free compost is the key. So it's making sure that you're not overwatering it initially when you freshly pot something up because it will sit wetter. Peat-free compost tends to be a little bit on the hungrier side. So you'll probably find that with new plants, you'll probably need to feed it sooner than you would with other compost with added fertilizer. I tend to mark it on the calendar when I feed different pots um, so I know what I'm doing. So I'm not either overfeeding something but then underfeeding it and getting a sickly plant at the end of it. Becky Mealy there. I've been using peat-free compost for about 20 years and so I raise about 800 transplants each year in my back garden and plant them on my allotment. I raise them all in peat-free compost and I'm very happy with the results. I have to pay particular attention to watering and feeding, but that's true with any compost. The thing is that it's not quite the same as a peat-based compost, so my regime is a little bit different. It's got to the stage now that if I try and use a peat-based compost, I find it rather difficult. I've become so used to peat-free composts. I imagine we'll all be spending more time in our gardens over the next few weeks, and it's worth remembering how important a gardener's role is. We're helping to make the UK an even greener place. In fact, a recent RHS survey revealed that each year, in total, 22 million plants are added to our gardens and to our members' green spaces. That's 350 football pitches worth of newly plant-filled space. A large amount of these plants are trees, creating the equivalent of 98 hectares of forest per year. And one great way to green up our streets is to get planting in our front gardens. They're often neglected spaces, but why not pack them full of colour to delight passers-by? Our advisor, Jenny Bowden, has some top tips on where to start. I think it's really, really important to care for our front gardens because they do so many different things for us. Obviously, there's the look of the front garden. You want your garden to look lovely as people walk by. But also, they have many, many uses. They're fantastic places for wildlife, places for insects to shelter, birds to nest, etc. They perform quite a good function for preventing flooding. Uh, we've got a lot of problems because people pave over their gardens. There was a, a survey in 2016 that the RHS conducted and it suggests that one in four UK front gardens are paved over and nearly one in three front gardens have no plants at all. But having plants in the garden can actually prevent flooding so it actually stops the water that would land and disappear down into the drains, actually stops that and it's able to be used by the plants, which is fantastic. Plants provide cooling as well especially in urban areas, the paving heats up and acts a bit like a storage heater. So it heats up during the day and at night makes it more difficult to sleep as the warmth from the paving is released. 
people want suggestions of plants that are going to perform in those smaller areas under quite difficult circumstances sometimes because people aren't always out in their front gardens watering so they want quite resilient plants. Quite a lot of callers are from the London area where the soil is clay sometimes it can be shady as well also people want plants that can go underneath windows so they've got that sort of classic house wall with a window about a meter up and so you want plants that won't grow any taller than that that are going to look fantastic all year round and do something different at different times so it's coming up with things that have more than one season of interest that really earn their keep in the front garden. So things that earn their keep, lavender, sedums, salvias, hebes, perennial wallflowers. I would definitely have penstemons in there and also euphorbia. And then you can get some climbers in there as well if you've got some uh, fences that need covering. If you've got a shady spot, the viburnums are quite useful as a group. Things like viburnum burkwoodii, you've got your scent as well, and quite a few of those are evergreen. And skimmias and hellebores for the early bumblebees coming out, venturing out. And to extend the season, I'd have bulbs, lots of bulbs. Among other plants that people might look at if they've got a clay soil and they want something that earns its keep, I would be looking at Hemerocallis, which is the daylily. I'd be looking at hardy geraniums. It's very nice to have a tree in your front garden. It doesn't have to be a big tree. There are plenty of smaller trees. Any trees that you plant in your front garden, I would suggest that you look at the ultimate height and then plant your tree as far from the house as the height that you're expecting the tree to get ultimately. You could be looking, for example, prunus incisor and birch. Betula moonbeam is a smaller variety of birch, which is going to get to six metres in 10 years. That still might be too big for a lot of people, but in tree terms, it's still considered quite small. Prunus cursor, uh, that's with a K, is another one that has lovely flowers early in the year, followed by fantastic autumn colour. My favourite that is just coming into flower very shortly is called Circus Avondale, which is a red bud and it flowers on bare wood and then it's followed by heart-shaped leaves and kind of yellowish autumn colour. But it's really very ornamental and people will stop and peer over the, the hedge or, or your wall and ask you what it is because you, you don't see them that often. It's kind of well worth noting that if you're thinking about paving over your garden because you need the parking, you will actually need to get planning permission if you're using a non-permeable surface and it is over five metres squared, which is a great incentive to make sure that you do use permeable materials. You could do something as simple as um, having two rows of paving where the tyres are going to go and you can plant low-growing plants in between you would use a semi-permeable membrane in the surrounding area and cover with gravel. So that's the simplest way of being able to have parking area and also grow things like thyme, a little plant called arenaria. You can use bugle. You could even use little helianthemums. Or if you've got paving slabs there already, you could just lift the odd one or two and plant directly into them and the 
the water will find its way, like a bit like a soak away, so there'll be absolutely minimal maintenance. There's a garden not very far from where I live. Uh, it's, it's like a 1950s ex-council house when they built really proper gardens front and back, so it's quite deep. And they've turned the whole front garden into a vegetable plot. It looks absolutely fantastic, and it means that they're often out there as well, so people stop and have a chat. So it's all very sociable. So, yeah, there's nothing stopping you from turning your front garden in, if you don't need to park there, planting it up with fruit and veg. My top three tips for bringing vibrancy and life to your front garden would be to get a hedge in there, either to replace a fence or to add in as an extra. You could use Eliagnus, would be a super choice. I would also add in a small tree so that you get change of height. It's nice on the eye and also you can plant underneath, so it's aesthetically very pleasing. And finally, I would get scent into the garden. So in the shade, Daphne Balua, and in the sun, Daphne Eternal Fragrance would be my choices. Good to hear from Jenny there. It got me thinking about my own front garden. I was involved in the initial work after the flooding about 10, 15, 20 years ago. I can't really remember. And I decided to make my front garden a planted one, a green garden. And so I made a parking space for my car with uh, two paved strips for the wheels, planted between the wheels with lots of ivy, as that was the only thing that seemed to survive the heat from the catalytic converter. And then the rest of the garden was planted up mainly with evergreen shrubs, things like cistus, Himalayan hawthorn, skimmia and lots of bulbs as well. It's a north-facing garden that is uh, well suited to evergreens. I did have one plant of beautiful pink flowers that exactly matched the colour of the car, but unfortunately I sold the car and now there's a severe clash, but that's the way of gardening. I'd love to see how your neighbourhood is painting Great Britain green. Share your photos via Twitter, Instagram or Facebook and use the hashtags RHS Podcast and Greening Great Britain. For more on what we talked about in this episode, you can visit rhs.org.uk slash podcast, where you can also find links to information about the ways gardening can lift the spirits in this time of self-isolation. As we deal with coronavirus across the UK, things at the RHS are undoubtedly going to be a little different as we adapt to this quickly changing situation. That said, we feel as passionate as ever about delivering brilliant garden advice for you and are planning to up the ante with our podcasts by making them weekly. I'm very excited about this and we have lots to share. But until then, it's goodbye for now. From me, Guy Barter. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress Robotic Lawn Mower, the lawn is actually looking better. 
The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.